Let's shake things up a little bit. This is a topic which is extremely near to my heart and I thought about it for decades and hence I will actually add examples, elements. I will be a little bit taking my time on some of the, of the uh, angles uh, of approach, but hopefully you will find this podcast as entertaining as this topic is for me. This is absolutely a critical topic because very often talking to people, listening to the conversations, looking at programs, the question or the impression we receive is very often that at the very same time, life is too much. We can't bear it anymore and not enough. One of the typical questions I read about is, do you think you have it all? Or is it possible to have it all? And why? Because we are bombarded on a minute-by-minute -minute basis by celebrities' problems and celebrities' issues. And at the same time, we are led to believe that they've got a charmed life. Or on the contrary, that it's terrible. Maybe it's just to make us feel better. Or on the contrary, to provide us with some kind of things to look forward to. But the core is that our own personal life, our own individual life, very often seems empty. What am I doing here? What am I going to do tomorrow? I'm bored, I'm blasé, whatever. Or on the contrary, much too much. I've got too much work, I've got too many issues, I've got and so on and so forth. So I think this is absolutely crucial to get our own take on what makes up this occupation, what our life is filled with, which we decide on. This is a discussion about actually what my life, what your life, what everybody's life is filled with. Let's start where all life starts, that is when there is nothing. This is the void of creation, or at least that's the way we understand it. And then we take this emptiness and we build it up into something until actually we do reach a point where often our life seems either futile or overflows with needs the moment we stop and consider it. It always seems to swing one way or the other, like a balance act clanking left and then right, until we reach a point where there is only one way out which we can think of, which is either to withdraw or to suspend it. Basically, it is, as we said, too much and not enough simultaneously. But at the heart of it all, we get to pick, to choose, to shape this. We give the, their significance to our needs, to these needs. We do justify, we prioritize, and then we act, but always based on these needs we identify. They may be given to us by genetics. That's one of the latest discussions that there is around. Uh, basically, is our needs somehow written in our DNA? Is it given to us by our education, our family? Is it because of trauma, of experience, of culture, of revelation? Whatever you want. But our life is basically the sum of all of these choices. These are accredited choices. So how should we balance these priorities, these choices, and when we can answer this. This is actually how we actually live our life. This is the essence of many philosophies. 
This goes up until we get this into a feeling of alienation. This was the exact word which was probably not invented, but at least used by the existentialists. Basically, the moment we feel a stranger in our own life, where we take a step back and our life seems odd, seems of key. Nature, we are told, abhors emptiness, and we can actually verify it. We can actually do the experiments, we can actually follow the scientists. This has been done since the 18th century. This was the first, uh, I would say, marvel of science with you know the vacuum balls, and probably you've done that in school. But the idea and the answer is, if nature abhors emptiness, then we should by definition, abhor emptiness too. The void is to be resisted. The void is, if you want to translate it, bad. And hence, how do you fight against the void? Well, you feel it. But then, of course, the next question is, you feel it with what? And this is why your life actually becomes what, in gaming terms, you, you, you talk about uh, as a time sink that is basically you take Candy Crush, you take these kind of games where fundamentally it's not the achievements themselves, it's the action itself, the fact that you are losing time in a certain way, that you are recognized for the time you have played. You are recognized simply to be there. This is the definition of a time sink. You can add to it a grind, collect X amount of tokens, of coins, of bananas, of, of coconuts, whatever you want, simply because you want to accrete you want to some basically achievements. You want to get the recognition for having been there. Or you can even fill it with some higher purpose, some kind of superhuman, literally, topic, superhuman project. But all of these elements come back to how do I feel my life? And this is where it has to start. We have this feeling that we feel our life, but with what? And this is what we are going to talk about today. When the end will come, we will ask ourselves, we will be asked, people will comment on the fact that we have lived a full life. Isn't that the standard expression you hear, whether at the Mary or in church or in any official building, where your casket will be present? Or you have not filled a full life. So what happens then? Well, what is actually a full life? This is one of the first questions. Does it mean a worthy or meaningful life? Does it mean a successful one or simply a happy one? Probably we unconsciously make it a little bit a mix of all three because after all, money does not buy happiness or all of these expressions, worthiness, success and happiness are somehow the three basic elements which we keep tossing about whenever we think about life. Each of these, whether it be worth, self-worth, success, happiness, have their own definition. We all have our own very personal definition for all of them. Somehow, it all depends ultimately on how we see this life ending. This depends entirely on the cosmic judge we may meet at the end of it all, maybe at the end of the light tunnel, anything. This is anyhow 
these are the three elements with which we fill basically our life. We do give hierarchies, we do give priorities, we do give rankings. We are given also by our culture, our families, our societies, hierarchies, rankings, and priorities of all of these elements. Worthiness, success, and happiness. But ultimately, all of these, these hierarchies, these priorities, these rankings are our own choices as well. We can choose to see them as critical or just an element, something that exists. So to be able to answer all of this, we need to unravel this fabric. We need to deconstruct the layers and start revealing our own personal mental health layers, what we have added on, what we have built up in our own life where we thought at some point, maybe not, but maybe yesterday, maybe unconsciously or consciously, how we built up our own view on life and how we filled it. We are going to peel off all of these layers and analyze exactly how we feel our life. We are not going to say there is a right or there is a wrong formula, there is a right algebra and there is a wrong algebra, no. The first element is we've got to understand what priorities we find in our own life. Maybe it's all, maybe it's none of this. This can be extremely lofty, extremely high-ranking, extremely high-purposing, or on the contrary, very mundane, very small. This is why you've got books and books and books about the higher purposes of life, but also the smaller purposes of life. This is just how we live. This is just how we deal with the void. Whether we call the void emptiness, whether we call it apathy, whether we call it boredom. So in this text, obviously, you will have a lot of my own personal canvas. You will have a lot of my own personal priorities. This is actually by discussing that you will find your own layers, your own priorities, your own rankings, your own hierarchies, mental or real, in your life. How to translate, how to categorize all of these elements which fill our life? Well, to me, there are three major layers. One is what I would call the higher purpose. Why not transcendence or any other complicated terms? It's because it depends entirely on each and every single one of us. This is the purposes which give our life meaning, which give our life a sense. It could be saving souls, saving the world, saving the whales, making sure our family is okay. These are absolutes. These are essential elements which actually make up our life, which give, again, our life sense. Some of the way we feel our life, regardless of who you are, regardless of what we want to achieve, regardless of where we think we stand, these are tokens of achievement. Somehow they track our progression in life. It can be on the one end billions of dollars. It could be actually cars, it could be houses, it can be simply how many tomatoes grew in your garden last week, how you achieved actually this extremely complex model you were actually building last week or on the contrary the, the origami you just created and 
and the smile you got on your partner's face. This can sound as empty or as filling as you wish, because it is. And then in between this absolute significance and this very material progression between higher purpose and tokens, there is emptiness. There is an emptiness we crave, like when we meditate or when we get drunk. These three elements, significance, progression, and oblivion, are the three elements that coexist always in our life, that are totally consubstantial, which are always present in our life. And this, in an extremely personal mix, this is an intimately personal balance we reach. These three layers actually shape our balance of need, and this is, again, exactly how we fill the void. Again, there is no positive, no negative. This is just our occupation, how we spend our life. To me, there is always a confusing moment where you suddenly realize that emptiness is everywhere in life. Normally, you associate it with the negative. We regret, all of us, the emptiness. This is even a standard sentence. This is a standard statement. My life feels so empty. We can even give it gradations. On the one hand, yes, yes, I've got a very successful career life, but my family life is non-existent, or on the contrary, I'm extremely happy with my personal and family life, but my career suffered a little bit. These are debates which are nearly eternal, which you find in literature over centuries. And there is another side, another point in this discussion where it's not only a side problem, it's really the core of who we are. This is really an absence which becomes overwhelming. This is depression. This emptiness, this void goes into erasing any sense in our life. Nothing makes sense anymore. There is no real point anymore in life. On the other end of the spectrum, and this is still the void, this is still emptiness, but there is a very positive connotation to that experience. Let's say, for example, you are on holidays, you sit on a balcony and you look over a beach or a fantastic landscape. The sun is up, everything is okay, and you just feel emptiness. But emptiness as a pleasure, not emptiness as a threat, not oblivion as depression. That goes also in length of time. For example, you have worked extremely hard and you feel that finally you have achieved something, that sense of achievement, that's measurable elation, pleasure of reaching a title or a seat or your own desk or whatever. This is a feeling of emptiness, which is basically a positive. To me, actually, the most difficult point is to realize that emptiness is totally neutral. The void is absolutely neutral. Let's imagine that you just finished an extremely successful speech or meeting, or you concluded a sale or whatever. And do you remember that feeling the next day? You just wanted it so badly. You thought that the moment you would get it, that you would succeed, you would feel something complete. You would feel that your life is filled with something. And actually, 
it feels totally empty. In my own personal experience, it can mean that on the way back through the airport, I would just start buying stuff, pullovers, jackets, newspapers, whatever, just to, to feel that intense feeling of emptiness. We can feel emptiness with cars, with shoes, with whatever you want. That actually just digs this feeling of absence deeper and deeper and deeper. So why not try and address this, which is what this article started with. What and how do we feel our void? But actually, only thinking about depression and emptiness as a negative is missing 50% of the picture, at least. Because actually the void can be a very positive experience. We all felt it. Whether it is sitting on the balcony or on the beach or at the bar, looking over a fantastic landscape, having a great time, soaking in the sun, whatever. We experience sometimes the emptiness simply as a pleasure, a relief. That is actually why we can definitely say that the void in itself, emptiness in itself, has to be seen as neutral. For example, when you do an extremely successful speech and you just come off the stage or you just reached that goal, that title, that office, that amount of money which you dreamt of for all of your life, and you wake up the next day. Yes, on the moment you, you feel great because you have reached finally your goal. But does it feel your life? Does your feel does your life feel suddenly complete? No. On the contrary, very often you feel even more empty because you suddenly realize that that particular achievement, that particular higher purpose was not life itself. And then as a remedy. You can start buying cars or shoes or, or whatever. For example, after very successful speeches, it very often happened to me to end up at the airport and buying whatever was there for the taking. And then this absence gets just deeper and deeper and deeper. You feel a deeper and deeper void. This is what we are going to try and address today. Again, starting with what we all heard at funerals, it just seems human to fill our life with significance. We are looking for lofty ideals, beliefs, actually to give our life some sense. What we are looking for is some form of logics, of explanation, rationalization, maybe if you want, okay, not a problem, whether you call it karma or saving your soul, whatever. But what we like to look at our life as is some kind of significance. We actually look for what could be called higher narratives. Some logical sequence with cause and consequences, obviously. And life actually, if you think about it, life feels extremely empty without this kind of higher purpose. So, it gives us the occasion to stare at emptiness, to understand and accept the void, and as the expression goes, stare unblinking at it. 
we feel this primordial emptiness with needs. This is something which we can call actually an absolute significance, which we are looking for in our life. And it can start with saving souls, as I was saying, or rescuing the planet or just the whales. It can be as well. And, and this is why it can be very, very, I would say, multiform. It can be, be, be believing in a creator, in a god, or on the contrary, your, your higher purpose in life. Maybe not to believe actually in a god. So these higher imperatives, these higher narratives, these higher purposes end up defining us, both in our own personal eyes, of course, or in the eyes of others, because this is, this is for them as much as for us, the way we see our life going. So you could argue that, quite correctly, that these sets of purposes or these individual beliefs, these individual ideals may not be our own personal choice 100% or maybe not even 99% or even not at all, but actually may be dictated by personal circumstances, this or that, fine. But what we can always do at the very least, if not to choose them out of nowhere, it's to dial them up or down. We can always choose to believe, but we can also choose never to preach. That is entirely our choice. We can dial up between the different levels of ideas for example we can listen to the science but as well accept the fact that science is always and by definition work in progress at the very heart of it is our basic understanding that an empty life is a failed life this is something you see in all cultures this is something you hear in any and every single language you may know of. This is apparently a default human understanding that an empty life is a failed life, a life without point, basically. So there is no goal, there is no achievement, there is no progression. It's just a grind. I, I live, I breathe, that's it. Beyond that, we can see also that this is an understanding which is core human understanding in the amount of historical tales, cautionary fairy tales, if you want, about the tragic or at least bad consequences of inactivity and indolences. This is why caricature uh, or comic characters around the world are generally some kind of lazy guy sleeping by the street or something like that. This is this type of tale against indolence and inactivity is as old as recorded storytelling. That is against wastefulness. This is basically fundamental unworthiness for the individual. Idleness cannot be accepted. So much so that actually classes or entire roles, social roles around idleness and this kind of uh, non, let's say, action, is to give categories such as nuns or monks or hermits a collective purpose. They do that because they pray for us or they save our souls or whatever. So basically, when there is absolutely emptiness, we give it a higher purpose to accept these categories within society. Without this, monks, nuns, hermits would just be drifters. 
outcasts to our society. A full life seems to be, by definition, the exact opposite of an empty one. Life must be full, maybe because our counterexample to life is death. And death, as we know it, is permanent absence. Personal absence, absence of the character, or just, just a hole in our social experience. So to all of our ex senses and intelligence, death is actually the ultimate void. Hence the difficulty to rationalize death as a neutral event, not a good one, not a bad one. Unsurprisingly, this is exactly what we hear during funerals. A full life is something which we wish to every single living being. Don't we hear he or she lived a full life? An empty one, per definition, is a bad one, which means that ultimately it is abhorrent to life itself. So we seem to be able to define life by what it should not be. So life should not be empty. Okay, If it is to be full, it should not be empty. That's as simple as that. So life should not be nothing. But going further, what does it mean? Well, it depends on exactly what you are talking about when you say life should be better than the absence of because ultimately nothing is the absence of. However, is it satisfying? Well, we can immediately understand that there is actually quite a logical problem there. On the, the one hand, we can pretty much define nothing by the opposite of everything. So on the one hand, you've got everything. On the other hand, you've got nothing. If there is absolutely nothing, okay, then that's something which we grasp, we should be able to define, but everything. Everything is very difficult to not only quantify, but to even define. How to give a positive definition to everything with a big E? Well, that's nearly impossible, or at least without giving it a face or a word or a name or a reason. And hence, we end up in a situation where both ends of an apparently very logical opposition, nothing and everything, leaves us in some kind of conundrum. We cannot define precisely either of these two, and hence we end up in the middle. We end up with something. And this is how we end up defining our life. Oh, my life is fun. My life is a journey. My life is work. My life is meaning. My life is non-meaning. My life is emptiness. All of these words are just defining something. They are not defining the nothing or the everything. And hence, we end up lying in between, living in between these two absolutes, nothing and everything. And this is where the whole debate originates, and this is the success, to be, to be very, very direct, this is the success, I think, of the existentialists to have actually raised this question and started this debate. Because at the very heart of it 
is we think we can pretty much define the void, the absolute nothing. But this overwhelming feeling of emptiness is not the opposite of everything. This is an opposite. This is an overwhelming feeling. The concept itself remains elusive because in our life we can only experience it by bits and pieces or by proxies. And all of that from a sense of life, from, from giving a higher purpose to our life, can only be very unsatisfactory. We can only experience everything and nothing as fragments. Yes, you do have Satori philosophies, you do have uh, beliefs which tells you that you will be illuminated and basically you will get to know, you will get to touch, you will get to be able to define nothing or everything or both at the same time. But to the average human being without an enlightenment and without a revealed truth, we can only experience life in bits and pieces and fragments, fragments and proxies. We have basically glimpses of these extremes, of these absolutes. And however, we make them central to our life. They will always remain concepts to us, ideas. Defining the void may sound, may seem like a purely intellectual exercise, but let's take a very pragmatic example. Let's have a look at how we define zero. So zero, per definition, it, it's written on the tin, it should be the absolute nothing, right? It's a mathematical zero, but what is it? Well, this is not really nothing. This is a point of origin. We can approximate it, we can, we can basically give it many, many definitions, many very complex uh, notions behind it, but ultimately, this is simply a point of origin from here to there. How long did it take us? Well, it took us, in human terms, quite a long time. It's only since the last 7,000 years, at least, that we are sure that there was a definition of a zero value as a point of origin. That is probably the last 2% of the chronology uh, of humanity. And humans, before that, lived quite well without a zero, without a mathematical zero. So we know that there is a feeling. And again, when we try to define an absolute by this kind of fragmentary information, we, we are left with something which is quite unsatisfactory. So let's bring it down to home. When do we feel absence? When do we feel nothing? When do we feel void? When do we feel that there is this something missing in our life? Well, let's take an example. We are waiting at the pub for a friend to show up and she is or he is very late and, and you can't really drink but you don't want to drink on your own you, have, you don't know if you are going to, to to order but ultimately regardless whether you get anxious or not whether this person is usually late or not the one thing you feel is deep down a sense of emptiness a sense of nothingness and if you had already a bad day, you know that this may actually trigger, this may actually accelerate your own bad feeling, your own bad thoughts. This is actually, let's put it like that, an, international, an internationalized, uh, an updated version of the classical 
existentially parable, which has been described by Jean-Paul Sartre, a big name of uh, international philosophy. And this emptiness actually comes in that particular case of the sum of the absences, whether they are actual or they are potential, that is the things which we may think consciously of or unconsciously of. This is simply a point of time where actually we touch, we can feel actually the nothingness, we can feel the emptiness, but we feel, we approximate the emptiness. This is not the absolute definition of the absolute void. This is how 30 minutes within this podcast, we reach actually quite a very high level metaphysical and philosophical question. It may not be driving our day-to-day -day life, it, not, it may not even drive our conscious life at all, but actually these concepts, these difficult questions and this impossibility to define precisely the beginning and the end, the nothing and the everything, is central to the way we live our life, however we may think about it or not. Fundamentally, our life is a continuous transition between an origin point we will never know and an end point we will never experience. These both extremes are actually guesses. We cannot define nothing and everything, we can't even experience it in our own life. Actually, whenever we will be dead, and hopefully finally dead, somebody will say ashes to ashes, dust to dust, because this is the journey which we may see in others, out of nothing, back into nothing. This is death through others. They are not there anymore. He is not there anymore. She is not there anymore. And she will never be back. And he will never be back. That is our approximation of nothingness, of absolute absence. On the contrary, on the other end of this, we've got the creation. And here as well, we, we experience birth through others or through mechanisms which we can approximate, but are as unknowable as death itself. Birth and death are, and will always remain for us humans, mysteries all of our life. But obviously, what could we do apart from giving them absolute significance? These are miracles. These are unknowables. These are what can only be described as co-drivers of our life. And again, whether we are more intellectually or less intellectually inclined. They are the most urgent imperatives in our life, regardless of culture, DNA, civilization, age, group, whatever you want. Birth and death are significant. But this also means to me something which is absolutely essential. That is the only thing we can absolutely experience, the only thing we can be sure of is transition, is change, if you want. Our only actual experience are moments on top of it, of transitions, not an absolute eternal transition. No, these are glimpses, moments of transition from something into something else. Our life is not the opposite of death. This is a timeline between birth 
and death, both of which end will be experienced by others. You can approximate it, you can have magical mushrooms, whatever you want, but the physical material experience can be reported to you, can be explained to you, can be even witnessed to you for your, uh, your birth, your death. So far, we don't know what will happen. And hence, these two extremes, birth and death, become, like nothing and everything, the two markers of our absolutes, the two markers of significance which are valid throughout our life. Whether we think that our life is a timeline, a something, if you want, between nothing and everything, or between nothing and nothing, from the void back into the void, or from everything into everything, from God back into God, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, is a complete choice, which is based on your personal experience, this is based on your feeling, this is based on glimpses of experiences. <clears throat> These imperatives can be combined, nothing to nothing with a something in between, or everything to everything with a something in between, or a nothing into something into everything at the end, whatever floats your boat. And honestly, this is the very definition of an act of faith you will have to make. This goes beyond logics and experience cannot be tested. This goes and this explains why the human experience seems so often so unscientific based on emotions and feelings because we are simply in a state of transition between two states which we do not, cannot define more precisely. For the proof, this is why magic is so fascinating around the world. We would love to see that creation of something out of nothing, but literally out of nothing, but we can't because we cannot know nothing. We cannot experience nothing. This is how, for example, in science, one of the most famous failure was the spontaneous generation, flies who were apparently appearing out of nowhere, out of void, out of space, which actually proved to be simply maggots from butterflying plants. Sadly, we witnessed transitions and struggle to define the origin points. That is maybe why we humans are always anxious, always inquiring, always questioning to try and find significance within our lives, because we cannot put the finger, we cannot define precisely both endings. So this feeling of uneasiness in our life, which is common across, I think, every single human being, to different degrees, obviously, to different extents, is that we look for absolute significance but we can only experience transition states, change, but never an end to it. We can only glimpse at these absolutes, whereas our material experience is only bits and pieces. This is actually how we fill our own void. We think and dream in absolutes and live in relatives. That is, we live in something, we live in between. When it seems easy or easier to give something, an approximate 
shape and approximate definition, the moment we try to grab it, it also blurs out of focus. But because we've got this impression that it is in between two absolutes, in between two endings, two possible absolutes, and the, the nothing and the everything, it seems acceptable. These relative, these some things, these in-betweens, remain transitory, and they are just as fundamental to us as the absolutes, which we naturally will turn towards. There is a temptation to define everything, that is the big everything, as a something, that is something which we could, we could uh, grab, okay, but an absolute something. The reality is that for something to be everything, it would have to be all the somethings. It's that simple, that logical. It would have to be all the causes, all the consequences, or all the narrative interpretatives, if you want. But this means, very practically speaking, that the only way to do that, to reach that, would be to basically pile on somethings to try and approximate, and still we would know from the beginning that piling on all the somethings would still not bring us into everything. And so we'd give our life significance with absolute goals, absolute somethings, if you want, but which we know from the very beginning remains very limited in their potential, very limited in their concepts. That is the frustration probably to be human, but this is the frustration, actually, of partial answers. We may be tempted, as we, we just discussed, we may be tempted to pile on significance layers. And I'm going to save souls. And I'm going to save wares. And I'm going to save the world. And I'm going to save my parents. And I'm going to save my kids. And I'm going to this. And I'm going... Or I'm doing it. It's not even a question of whether or not I want to. I may be doing it. But that would just be some kind of band-aid plaster on top of a feeling of emptiness, multiplying the layers, knowing that each and every single one individually reaches out to significance, but will never be significance. This is the fundamental layer of what I would call higher purposes, and I hope I was clear with that definition, which will always remain works in progress. There will never be in our life a moment of absolute creation. It will always elude us. And this is a logical complement to the conceptual level in our life. We go on to try and grasp a material reality behind these transitions. We try and we anchor our life in achievements, in progression. This is the origin of these tokens, of these collections, which we gather during our lifetime. This is giving to significance some kind of graspable material reality. So after a good coffee, I think that it is time to go on to the next discussion on how we feel our life, how we feel the void in our life. The second type of occupation, if you want, is often seen as a negative. Oh, yeah, you know, they are only thinking about money and so on, or they are only thinking about acquiring more stuff. 
this is the wrong way to look at it, in my opinion. This is simply something which we all do to mark time, to pass, I would say, our life with some, to fill our life with some kind of achievement recognitions of some kind of token. It can be money, of course, but it can be anything. It can be number of kids, it can be the number of cars, it can be the, the, the age we reached. It all depends on our own personal perception of life. But actually, this is down the same element as we can see in, for example, gamification, because we like, we enjoy ticking off time. Let's imagine that we don't have watches. Well, humans before watches, before mechanical watches, had water clocks, had sand clocks, whatever you want. Why? Because we, we like to actually measure, see, make concrete this passage of time and at the same time be able to get some recognition for it simply not saying oh i'm getting older but this is i would say compared to the the first layer of occupation something which is seen as a little bit you know on the side uh, we've got a higher purpose we are saving the wares we are saving souls that's a positive i, I give my life an absolute an absolute definition but actually, there is no reason why measuring achievement of progression should be a negative. It's a bit like saying, oh, emptiness is bad. It does not have to be. Actually, we fill our life with measures. We fill our life with measurements, which actually are as valid or at least as genuine as anything else. What do we count, for example, with birthdays? Okay, so we can say, I'm one year older, and when we are young, hey, I'm one year older, that's a positive. When we are older, one more year is not that much of a positive. Uh, we can even say that, hey, each birthday is one year less to live. Fantastic. All of that is materially absolutely true. Yet, despite this duality, remains, birthday remains around the world as an essential marker of social convention. This is something which we all feast one way or the other. This is something which we all recognize one, one way or the other. And it feels absolutely, absolutely natural, the same way as we feel compelled to connect markers of social, cultural or personal achievement. Again, this can be cars, this can be clothes, uh, labels, brands, this can be number of houses, this can be titles, this can be recognition, this can be medals, this can be number of pets, this can be number of animals, this can be the size of our farmhouse, this can be our diet. We use all of this as a marker of success, as a memento, a souvenir, a memory of achievement or just even if we are not into that and we are totally dematerialized into a higher purpose is as a chronological marker at the very least. This is what I would call progression tokens. These are progression markers. This is why it is so comparable to gamification, why gamification seems so natural to us. Definitely, Whenever we talk about this, instantly you've got a lot of negative pictures which pop up in your mind. And 
if these tokens, if these achievement markers become an end in and by themselves, then yes, it becomes can become an obsession and can become a negative. But this is only when it becomes, I would say, nearly a medical condition that we can say that they are negative in themselves. Else, they are just having their own personal significance within our own life. This is simply a way with which we fill in our own void. Again, if you remember that the, the way we look at our life is simply in between, is the period in between birth and death, between nothing and everything, measuring this something, giving it some kind of flavor, some kind of material reality, is absolutely, oddly maybe, but radically logical. Measuring progression gives us measurable, tangible anchors in life. They are neither good nor bad. Let's take even the higher purposes. We need to be able to give them some material recognition. I saved X whales, X bears. I saved X souls. This is, for example, the logic behind the, the famous uh, invention of the Catholic Church to actually buy out saved souls or to pay to save souls. This sounds oddly logical, if not maybe acceptable from an ethical or metaphysical standpoint. It feels human. Collecting these tokens, these progression markers, seems again, very often as a negative or something which you, especially in Catholic cultures or in Christian cultures, as something which we should put on the side. But we actually collect, create progression markers for everything and anything. All cultures, all societies have their own ways of recognizing achievements or at least passage of time. We all recognize stages in life we all have rituals around it. So, for example, above 60, once we have collected 60 times birthdays, but we have 60 years less to live, if you want, you become, in many cultures, what is called a senior citizen. And being a senior citizen, that is having lived that long, having, after all, experienced that amount of things, there was some kind of respect, not anymore, but to a large extent, you can still collect oyster cards, you can still have free public transport, or other, however, insignificant tokens of recognition of uh, achievements. But then, we all have these kind of markers. Whether we like it or not, we will define it by a certain brand of car, by a certain type of car, by the, the amount of people we, we meet, by the activities we have. For example, for a long time, playing tennis or playing golf was kind of a social marker. Maybe yes, maybe not. It also defines our, our level of achievement, our level of wealth, if you want. Depending on where and how we live, there is even some kind of, you know, saying that having a big family, having X amount of kids and grandkids shows off 
your success socially and financially. All of that comes from the same principle. What is easy to disagree with is what I would call the ultra-materialistic tokens. Okay, this is I've got that much amount of money or stickers or whatever you want. But it would be very short-sighted not to realize that this is not only about material tokens. It can be actually collecting personal experiences. It can be social achievements, totally immaterials, not, I would say, marked by medals or, or, or stickers or, or titles. It can be, or it could be maybe simply fulfilling some aspirations which you have, which you want to have. I want to have this, this, and this done. I want to have climbed X amount of summits. Each of these actually is entirely our own choice. We may stick with what I would call the socially recognizable tokens, that is tokens which we want to be able to share with others, or tokens which we want to be able to show off to others, or it can be even basically token markers which are purely for ourselves. They don't have to be social. This is a choice. This is a total individual choice. But again, within this, they can be social, they can be personal, they can be, of course, as well, of vastly different gradations okay like higher significances if you remember we said you can you can believe or you can preach or both this is entirely your choice the same way you've got different intensities around these progression markers we can totally refuse them and this can become actually one of our life's goal i refuse to have any money you may know people like that you can on the contrary try to not only collect them, but hold them in as high piles as you can. But overall, around the world, these tokens and these holding or these refusal, whatever, is a common human language. The one thing which is common across all of the humans is the squittering away of resources, the holding away of resources, whether you are in Tahiti or you are in central Germany. This is one of these typical human traits like idleness, unworthiness, which is instantly recognizable around the world. This is totally our own decision. Whatever we may think of them and their significance, their reality, their materiality, what they mean or not within the society, these tokens actually, all of these tokens, material, immaterial, mark our journeys through life. For us personally, they are a specific target which we set to ourselves. They are also and always have some kind of external audience. And this is something which we've got to accept whenever we set up for ourselves our own collection of achievement markers, achievement tokens. Whether it is imprinted or choice, whether it is 100% imprinted or 100% choice, or probably in between, whichever ratio, this is really getting them that marks, that feels our journey through life. Whenever we think about living a full life, don't you find odd that 
mention of how many kids, how many grandkids you had is one of these basic standard elogies uh, content you find at the end of the year. Oh yeah, you always have the kids, uh, the, the, this person, that person was, uh, had so many friends, like actually having friends would be some kind of social recognition, a marker. I had that many friends, you know, it's like you've got that many followers or these many likes or whatever. Is this really just a notch on uh, our social belt? It very often feels like that. So within a couple of uh, decades, what will it be? Oh, he had X amount of followers on Facebook or probably Facebook will be dead by now. But uh, let's say he had X amount of views on the metaverse or he had X amount of virtual friends in the virtual world where he was living. This is neither the material reality or the actual accountability of it or the actually what what the society at large is thinking about them. It's the fact that these tokens per definition give us and the world around us, the, the, the audience we choose to have around us, a significance which is critical in filling our void. And that remain totally and utterly individually relevant, meaning that this means essentially a lot of things to us, to nobody else. It can be millions of dollars, billions of dollars, whatever. You can have 100K or 10K or 1K or $100. This remains totally your own view of your own life. You may think that having 100K is fantastic, that having $100 is fantastic. That is your own view, your own value, obviously. There is a judgment around it, but that is your own definition of success. That's the way you define success. We saw in the first uh, part, in the first discussion, that there was a question of worthiness. And worthiness is obviously, ultimately, also a dual-edged uh, sword. That is, you've got your own worthiness, the way you look at yourself, and as much the, the way society looks at you. This is exactly the same with these achievement um, tokens. It does not give us individual worthiness. That is, it does not tell us whether or not we have reached a higher purpose, but yes, they are worth being chased for whatever they are. They may be millions of dollars or a plant of tomatoes or a garden or simply two pets or kids or grandkids. These are the elements which we define in our life, which mark our life. Why else would there be any interest anywhere in the world to have as many people attending our funeral as we can? This is an important element, either because we fear to die alone, maybe, this is a very animal fear, and hence, once we're dead, this is the, the weird thing, that is, once we're dead, then our friends and relatives will convene as big a crowd as possible, wherever we are in the world, and the, 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 the vigil will be held for as long as possible. That's, I think, one of the, the biggest differences between, let's say, more digitalized or, or, or more uh, industrialized societies versus newer societies where the vigils last up to two days or three days, whereas in other civilizations they are over within an hour, if not less. Among, I think, the, the, the many misunderstandings around this collection of markers there is the fact that these markers can become 
quite logically an end in themselves. That is basically, to take a relatively transparent example, collecting or gathering or hoarding money can become an end by itself. But these are just logical. This is totally neutral. This does not tell anything about us except that we want to fill life's void. They, the markers, the chasing of the markers gives our life, our void, shape. They can take, obviously, a life on their own and they can do so for a very simple reason. They give us what I would call an unbelievable narrative. Hey, you know what? I'm a billionaire. Just the fact that there is a word like that indicates how much socially we recognize the fact that this or that person has amassed so much more success tokens than us. Regardless of what is the real material um, success behind it, whatever they can do with that, uh, however tight they are in, in their life and so on and so forth, this gives us a, a, a complete feeling of completion. These tokens by themselves are neutral, but the way we picture them or the way they give our void a shape is where the danger may be. The reason why it is important, I think, to recognize the role these markers play in our life is because this is only the beginning. Uh, we are all aware about uh, hoarding of uh, grain, wheat, or whatever oats, or, or cattle or camels or uh, whatever, plants. We are all aware about uh, the hoarding of money or, or uh, housing, whatever. Okay. The reality is that this gathering of markers, of tokens, is only at a very, very starting point in what life, our life, will be tomorrow. This is coming from digital techs and the fact that they are nearly able to quantify anything and everything at every single point of our life. Basically, our life will become, if it's not already, just a series of statistics. Let's take a very simple example. Many of us have actually um, odometers in the form of digital watches, which actually measure, whether we like it or not, whether we accept it or not, measure everything about our vitals. And so, for example, on the one end, we can know how many kilometers we run, how many kilometers we walked, because it can calculate the acceleration, how many kilometers we bicycled, probably, or traveled, but also, and much more directly, it can also measure what was our heart rate during that time, and so on and so forth. And most probably tomorrow, our dear benevolent guardian angel over our head there will be able to tell us how many years we statistically won or how many years we statistically lost after the activities of the day. Most probably it will be at some point or other be able to actually screen what we eat, what we drink or whatever other activity we may have. But this already exists today, no need for cheap coming from this one, that one, or the third one, or alone. But it can be done today. It can tell us more about our life 
then we have a new in the history of mankind. Our life is entirely gamified, whether we know or accept it or not. So this is why, for me, it's, it's very strange to, to read or to see programs about China's social credit points. This is nothing else than an algorithm which is tying up all of the information which is available today, wherever you live in the world. The social credit is, is simply a way to gamify our life. And indeed, if you saw this episode of Black Mirror, where you've got uh, kind of your uh, heads up display with the amount of tokens you earned or lost, or whether your social credit is good or bad, or, or becomes bankrupt, if, uh, if I remember the episode. Fine, it's, it's, it's something which is absolutely natural. The only point of resistance at this moment is that we accept that some of these tokens are socially valid, that some of these tokens are not yet socially valid because they have not yet been vouched by whomever we think as an authority of a higher purpose, whether we call it the society, the nation, God, or whatever. Whether we we call it uh, a subscription or whether we call it social credit points, this is the way our life today will be run. And hence, collecting achievement tokens is just absolutely natural. And if it is natural, it can only be legitimate. And so as much as this seems like a quite logical activity, as much we always try to rationalize, construct wise theories as to why we need tokens, why we don't need tokens, or whatever it may be. We always try to imbue this with some kind of higher purpose, legitimate purpose, or whatever it, was, it can be. Actually, they are neither good nor bad. This is what we make it. That is basically by linking the first layer of occupation in our void, our emptiness, which is higher purposes, significance, as we said, worthiness, and the second one, which is achievement progression. This is the two elements which we are trying to tie together. The truth is that without these tokens, it's very difficult to construct a narrative. As we said, from the beginning, we can't know first, and in the end, we will never know, which is death. So fundamentally, we can add as many layers of beliefs as we can. Ultimately, we will all crave at some point these markers of progression. And hence, collecting stuff is not only the most alluring way of filling the emptiness, it is also extremely natural as fighting boredom. It is probably the most easy solution to filling our own void. And hence, within a life, within an environment which can only become more and more and more gamified, it can only increase more and more and more. But at the very same time, as much as we understand that between two extremes, nothing and everything, there can only be something, as much in the shadow of all of these higher purposes and collection of tokens and collection of progression markers and so on, there can only be moments where we feel a burden of significance or where we feel that we can't chase forever something which we have difficulties focusing on, something which will always escape our grasp, or something which will always move beyond our immediate experience, our immediate ability to actually define. And hence, we need something. We need 
avoid to come out of this significance, purpose, all of these narratives. Why would we be looking forward to some kind of relief, some kind of temporary withdrawal from our life? Well, we saw significance, the search for higher purposes. We saw as well the, the chase of achievement, progression tokens, and basically both of these elements, significance and achievement, as an end in themselves, are quite intense, quite intensive. So it is simply natural to me to, to understand that there is another part of our life, of the way we feel our life, which is simply the shadow of this, which is basically a nothing, whether we are chasing for an everything or something. That is whether we try to fill our life with an absolute significance or on the contrary, smaller incremental tokens. We are right now at a time, we are in an era, if you want, where feeling on edge is a common problem for everybody. We, we are anxious, we are anxious about this, about that, personally, as a society, individually, as groups, families, and so on and so forth, because we worry about the future, our material success, our mental health, whichever way, whatever you want. But this means that Fundamentally, we are always, or we always seem, we always feel that we are on the edge of tipping over into a state of frenzy, a state of, of panic. This is what Kierkegaard was calling the busyness. Of course, this is a play on the word on business. Okay, so, but busyness is basically the notion that we are always potentially falling into an artificial state of keeping ourselves busy to avoid thinking. It is that, I would say, obvious, if you look at our life right now, this is obviously a risk which is can only increase tremendously when we look at the gamification of our life. Actually, if you ever played any game on your mobile, on the computer, or any other way, you know that there is a moment where you are playing the rules for the rules, you are playing the game for the game, nothing else. That is, you lose yourself into kind of relative objectives, which actually give you a sense of achievement right there, right now. This means that the core risk of all of that for us is to live our life, as Kierkegaard is saying, as a time thing. This is not as Kierkegaard is saying. Time sync is a typical gaming term. It means that basically a game, a game company, is engineering its activity, your activity, by simply getting you to lock on and basically lose your time. You, you can spend hours literally doing this and that, but you will not remember any of it later on, except that you feel these hours of your life. Which means that fundamentally the, the core problem is on the one end of the spectrum, We've got the possibility to fall into an artificial frenzy which replaces the meaningful activity. On the other end, is a timeout from these quests in our life legitimate? Or on the contrary, is it something to reject? Well, for me, oblivion or the search for oblivion is a timeout in achieving our famous full life. How can we do that? Well, on the one hand, 
immediately maybe what popped into your head depending on who you are what's your experience what's your background what's your culture it could be on the one hand simply meditating that is reaching emptiness through thought or on the contrary doing heavy drugs on both ends of the spectrum of respectability if you want but Ultimately, what does it mean? Well, it means we can meditate, we can read books, we can watch movies, we can watch TV, we can create anything, painting or statues or whatever, or we can simply drink, smoke, eat, have sex, why not? We do all of that, partly or fully, to recover, to rebuild up energy or to rebuild, actually, sense in the grinds we come have. This is how we built our life. We have, on the one hand, grinds. On the other hand, we are looking for oblivion. But oblivion, like looking for sense, like looking for activity, either busyness or significance, is simply, potentially, a huge risk if we do it for its own sake. So obviously, seeking oblivion is a big problem for societies in general. But at the same time, it is one of the most natural, or at least one of the oldest activities on record. Whenever a new grave turns up, whenever we study a monument, a poem, a song, painting, whatever, there is very often at least a hint, if not a direct description, a direct reference to actually seeking oblivion. So the first way we actually try to contain that, the first way we try to actually circumscribe this into a specific space is by dedicating classes, social classes, religious classes, intellectual classes in general, to that particular task. Basically, the idea is they are looking for oblivion intellectually because it is an important element, either to pray, either to, to seek assistance, or on the contrary, to try and explain it. So this is why you've got priests, shaman, artists, philosophers, for which actually using these means of oblivion, from meditation to drinking, smoking, whatever you want, taking mushrooms, are acceptable. Because in our mind, oblivion is basically on time. This is a timeout from social life. This is actually contemplation of the void. Contemplation meaning positive. So now the problem is that this is all very nice to, to circumscribe this seeking oblivion to a specific class, but for us mere mortals, we still need something because we like it. We, we yearn for it. So basically what we do is we contain these moments into some kind of social occasion, some kind of ceremony. So, social drinks, social smokes, social chemicals. We formalize the occasion, we give it a meaning, we wrap it into something more than simply seeking oblivion. And at the same time, because this is such a natural occupation of humans, this actually greases the social wheels. So let's take the obvious, which is drinking at a meal, drinking at dinner, eating food together, or maybe partaking in drugs for, for, uh, for some of us. On the other hand, meditation, yoga classes together, something like that, is also seen as normal. And, and let's be honest here, which wedding ceremony anywhere in the world 
does not justify some kind of time of social life, freedom, if you want, relaxation, some form of party, some form of drinking, some form of food, depending on your culture, and so on and so forth. This is basically the underlying reality of the festival, for example, of Holi in India, where you, kind, you take some kind of mild drug, mild anesthetic. So fundamentally, you are bringing into your life some form, some small form of oblivion. Indeed, let's be very honest here. Why, why else would beer have been one of the first inventions of mankind, apparently? We find beer since ever, this is one of the first manufacturer's uh, recipe, which we find and described and painted and, and, and transcribed and, and talked about as some kind of pre-dosed, reliable way to find at least happiness, if not oblivion, directly. So, which means that because of the risk and because we said that this is so anti uh, the story of a full life, Whenever we try to feel oblivion, we have to add some some form of social control. It's it's quite logical that old formed societies, all organized societies, but even very very fluidly organized societies like your family, basically tries to organize, try to frame uh, these moments of looking uh, for oblivion. It basically just recognizes the value as much as the risk that it represents to the fabric of society in general. But it does not mean that it is not a legitimate way, a usual way, a human way to actually fill the void, looking for the void, trying to fill this oblivion is a part of what makes up our own trial to actually fill the void of our life. At the same time, we've got to recognize as well that humanity remains humanity and there will be transgression, there will be going beyond the expected uh, usage or dosage or whatever you want to call it. Basically, you, you will always have people who want to spend their life meditating. You can find it in fakirs, you can find it in hermits, you can find it in desert dwellers and so on. So, yes, seeking oblivion obviously has its own risk. And we have enough controversies for it not to be mapped out carefully within our own lives. So the word addiction is a relatively new concept, but quite a clear one. Actually, it could be used from or for any kind of activity which seems to be looking for oblivion or forgetfulness or just taking some time out of our life. The risk, the risk we recognize is basically dependency and compulsion, which means that our full life is not our own anymore. Basically, we face the risk of losing control over our very own life. Yes, we know about the physical and the health risks, but this is essentially the loss of mental control, the loss of mental health, which forever has been a huge problem with the seeking oblivion. Basically, yes, we can forever argue that there is 
a social and political and religious agenda behind condemnations, behind even health warnings against these um, addictions or these uh, practices to look for oblivion. But to me, this denunciation goes one step beyond the immediate risk, the immediate and obvious danger. This goes into a control on how and why we as individuals could look for oblivion. Because if we do not abuse it, if we do not go beyond the expected postology, the expected usage, the expected whatever you want, if this is not destroying our own life, then why should we be forbidden? Or why should we be um, told that this is not a healthy habit or a healthy practice? Because ultimately what then we are told is you should live a full life yet again. Whenever we are trying to fill our void, basically we said already we've got the higher purpose is significance, then we've got this look for achievement tokens, you know, progression, this sense of progression, this sharing also of our progression within our life journey. <clears throat> Hence, yes, oblivion and looking for oblivion is not very productive if I look at it from a social point of view. But what we are very often told is that actually it is not worthiness. It is not one of these significance which we are told we should be looking for. Because again, whenever we slide into the messages against seeking oblivion from actually the, 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 the relatively harmless forms of poetry or meditation up to and including hard drugs and so on, what we are told is that no, 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 no. You're, you are losing your life to another entity. You are losing control of your life. This is the very definition of the devil, the temptation of the devil. So while we are at it, when we think about it, however less religious we may be, we instinctively recognize that the logical counter, the logical alternative to actually these elements of looking for oblivion are actually the higher possible purposes. Let's take an example of a very practical one, Alcohol, Alcoholic Anonymous, AA. The very fundamental practice of the AA, or any other drug system I, I know of, is to swap the drugs, the alcohol, the, 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 the bad occupation, the, the abuse of looking for uh, oblivion by replaced by significance, and in some cases, very directly, by religion. So to, it's not a surprise. Obviously, you are going to swap one way of filling your void with another way of filling your void, instead of having something which says, this is void, and I'm going to take a time out of it. You say, oh, on the contrary, I'm going to give purpose to my void. Fine. This is just exchanges, exchanging different solutions. But the risk is that obviously if you indicate what significance you may swap your search for oblivion with you are actually giving a solution which means that you are actually engineering this solution which is in a very direct way nothing else than social engineering and let's take our time here because yes 
in all of these controls, all of these necessary controls about the abuse of these means, of these tools, of these ways of looking, seeking oblivion, are fundamental to many of the current issues or discussions which we have in all of our societies. Oblivion and society are two core elements, two core problems, two core exchanges which need to happen. We recognize relatively easily that some oblivion is good. So, for example, meditating or running, because we all know that the, the core outcome of running is basically to create dopamine at some point, or painting, the reaching out to oblivion and eternity, to reaching out to the void, is quite acceptable because we can share the goal and again, we can assign a significance to that particular practice. Basically, everything else seems to start with destruction. We are losing our time. This is not real happiness. Alcohol, drugs, all of that is just artificial paradises. The real paradise, however, cannot be described. Because, again, as we said at the very beginning of this discussion, you cannot define everything. Or you can't define nothing. You can just define something. So if we define oblivion as a something, then this becomes quite instrumental. We can actually reach it out today in our life. And most of the answers are just, oh, this is bad. This is bad for you. That there is a material truth to it. Okay? There is no problem, but it does not answer the fundamental problem, which is we will, all of us, look for some kind of oblivion, some kind of rest, some kind of time out, time off from our life. And even when these timeouts are recognized as part of society, or when we find that these goals, the significance they have, all the achievements, the progression they represent are good, we are always ambivalent about them. Let's take artists as a simple example. The artists are institutionalized, both as lionized examples of ultra-supra intellects, which actually give us meaning in our life, or on the contrary, who end up actually in institutions, mental institutions. But the truth is that most of our artists will actually live on the margins of societies because their behavior, their searches, their interrogations, their questions make them marginals by definition. Obviously, you, this is the eternal debate between institutional artists and non-institutional artists, but Let's take a, a, another midway example. For example, meditating. Yes, anybody can meditate. Yes, this is open to anybody. You don't need a guru. You don't even need a yoga mat. You don't need to be sitting. in. A, you can just meditate by your own. But it's simply not everybody's taste. It's simply not everybody's predisposition. You, you, you may not see the purpose of sitting at your desk and standing it to the the emptiness, you, it may simply not be you. So if you deny the fact that there is a need for everybody to reach actually this emptiness, this void, to stare into it, 
then taking time off for any human means having a party, having sex, drinking alcohol, taking drugs, all of this, some of this, or maybe as a choice, none of it. If you are absolutely certain and if you feel comfortable and confident with your life not needing any type of oblivion, but it can and should still be a possibility to ensure the balance within your void. And so to me, looking for oblivion, seeking the void, is actually the price we pay socially to balance the pressure of life in general, but at a very, very basic level, the pressure of life's gamification. Again, we can have very high purposes, we may have very high questions and looking for extremely high-end significance or more direct one. But ultimately, we all have to answer the question of life's gamification. Do you have the tokens? Did you achieve this? Did you progress like that or not? Did you choose not to gather tokens or not to collect them? This is our life. And because we make these choices consciously and without knowing the answer, without knowing the end, without knowing the everything or the nothing, this means that we seek within our life always at some point oblivion. There is, as we saw, always some kind of trace of social engineering behind it. And demonization of sex, of drugs, and alcohol is never, ever, ever neutral because it reaches down to core understanding of social life in general. So this is why it always gets mingled with this is a damnation of the body. You will die from alcohol. Okay, maybe you, you, you will lose your brain because of cigarettes or, or your soul will go in hell. This is regular patterns which we see because, yes, abusing any of the ways to actually look for oblivion has a very direct toll. This creates physical and mental issues. There is no denying it. There, there is no if and but. And we know that anything that will bring us to the void will bring us to oblivion as a chance to actually be undangerous to us. Addictions enslaves, cripples, kills. No question about that. We do all know that these are problems which we face in our real life. So this is not to say this is a, a blank, a blank uh, activity. This is not a zero-sum game. There is a risk to it. But beneath this very direct risk, beneath this very direct condemnation, there is also a very, very strong social engineering element. And much more than whether or not you should go to Mars on, on Sundays or whether you should wear this kind of cloth or not, or whether this is the role of male or the role of females or, or whatever. This is the definition of what the normal way to die should be. This is for me something which is unspoken or which is given as a standard template. Uh, I, I heard very recently an argument which was during the French discussion about the uh, end of life, the voluntary end of life. Basically, um, one of the ministers, uh, who himself was um, actually a doctor, basically said that it was not 
for the individual to decide um, entirely on his uh, death because he had to uh, accept that doctors actually knew more about human uh, suffering than we did. So meaning that basically uh, we could not decide that it was time for us to go. That was suicide, which is bad, as we, as we know. Most civilizations uh, recognize that suicide for no purpose, bar your own personal um, decision, is not good, is not socially acceptable. Some are even banned from uh, graveyards and so on. But let's have a look at the most rational, the most obvious list of ways to die, to decide whether or not seeking oblivion, looking for oblivion, is good or bad for health. Because we are told that, and we are told more and more and more and more, that these are essentially the biggest problems our societies face. If I take the WHO list of causes of death, the most common way is to die of a heart disease or to die of a heart attack. So the heart attack is just boom, gone. Heart disease is because you've got already a problem. Then you do have lung and respiratory diseases. Diseases, not cancers. When I look for cirrhosis or lung or liver cancers, other diseases associated with um, abuse or, or overusage of um, alcohol or drugs or cigarettes or, or whatever, they don't seem to be coming up very strongly in the first uh, in the first top ten. The only one true modern way of dying, which seems on the contrary to be exploding, seems to be Alzheimer. So if on the one end alcohol consumption and cigarette consumption goes down, on the other end Alzheimer goes up, and we find normal to actually have a lot of research on how to make Alzheimer more acceptable, well, the answer is we try to make it longer. I don't know if you know anybody with Alzheimer. I would not wish on anybody to live longer with that, that disease. But this is basically what we seem to be looking for. And at the same time, we say smoking kills. At the same time, we say alcohol is a social plague. We don't say it since the last two years or 10 years or 20 years. We say it for the past 200 or 300 years when alcohol consumption became much more widespread when the alcohol consumption became accessible to more people on larger quantities thanks to the industrial revolution but is it better to die from alzheimer or from a heart attack the jury is not really out there i think i think the jury has already spoken at least to me and then smoking kills we all know that in the 40s in the 50s everybody smoked Absolutely everybody smoked. It was the rare occasion where somebody, at least in the Western world, and let's, let's speak even of countries uh, which are near and dear to me, which is basically the UK, France, uh, Germany, Belgium. Everybody was smoking. I started smoking when I was 12 or 15, something like that. It was absolutely normal to drink alcohol during food, uh, during lunches on, on a Sunday. All of that is very strange because humankind progressed, thrived, increased, 
during all of these years, we did not disappear. So saying smoking kills, kills what, kills when, kills how. The decision on how it is best to die should not be simply the, the, the province of some peer-reviewed, uh, reviewed peers somewhere. But I would digress here. So let, let's, let's go back to our main topic. And here we are talking about why actually denying humanity the, the tools, the occasions for oblivion is at the same time the most common social activity we see and at the same time the most futile one. Without digressing every, any further, let's go back to the core of the discussion. And we can only observe that any type of the escapism has and is and probably will always be fought against. It can be alcohol, it can be drugs, it can be the fight against alchemy, witchcraft, it can be the fight in the 80s against heavy metal, against meditation, poetry, against D&D. It can be anything and everything, and it's not Stranger Things and the sudden rehabilitation of heavy metal and D&D, which will change my mind. No, 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 no. But then it was seen as bad because as much as alcohol, heavy metal and D&D, which could be actually combined into one single activity, trust me, this was a loss of time. You were not productive. You were not positively contributing to society, meaning you had no real significance, nobody. Significance, progression, and oblivion are the three main activities we have in our life. So basically, the, these activities seem to be as regular and as classical and as usual as a comet in the sky. I'm sure, I'm sure, so far, I think we did not find any graffiti of a Roman anti-alcohol society, but it's bound to exist. The Bible itself is quoting alcohol, saying that it distracts from your duty to God, and basically you've got to wait for the Catholics to basically come up with the idea that alcohol should be part of a ceremony. Most probably you take the ancient religions, the Bacchanals and so on, they all included some form of rivalry. The modern twist on this is that as much as it was controlled in the past in certain ceremonies, in certain religious practices, through certain social classes, well, the progress, industrial progress in particular, have meant that we had to have bigger and much deeper control. So, England tried to ban gin, France tried to ban absinthe, uh, the Americans tried to ban alcohol in general, and we all know about the success of the prohibition. Then we've got to ask ourselves about the success of the war on drugs, which seems to be more moving people from cannabis and cocaine to heroin, from heroin into uh, methamphetamine, to a crystal meth, to to anything and everything, and to the latest one, which is tranquilizers and, 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 and zombie and so on. And every single time, it, the drugs, the means of looking for oblivion, seem to be harder and deeper and more and more and more dangerous and to have more and bigger and deeper and more frightening side effects and addictions and basically to kill and cripple more and more and more. Does it mean that we are unable 
to actually give oblivion its proper space in society, I think it's at least worth asking the question and answering it bluntly by staring the reality in its eyes and not to try and make up for our own decisions and our own um, choices. You all know the stories about metafentamine being actually originally a medication to stay awake when you were a bomber pilot or a fighter pilot during the Second World War. There were times in history where opium or cocaine or tobacco were actually cheered and greeted in, in song and text because all of this is simply a question of risk and the ability to actually counter the risk and humanity being humanity, you will have abuse of it, you will have transgressions, you will have basically humanity seeking to go beyond uh, reasonable uh, usage. But this activity in itself, sidestepping actually life, is just natural and logical. This is basically the price we pay for having a life filled with significance or progression and hence having to have this shadow state, which is basically uh, looking for oblivion. Within this, we've got to look at reality, again, from a very neutral standpoint. I think that the core reality, the core agreement we have to have is that anything and everything can actually create addiction and actually create risks, whether physical, mental, financial, whatever you wish, uh, psychological to ourselves. Any and every single displacement activity within our life has the risk to be transgressed, has the risk to actually be abused. It's not simply drugs and alcohol, which are relatively easy to pinpoint and easy to, 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 to blame. Not that they are good activities. Let me reiterate, that is not the point, okay? But Let's take, for example, we were talking about progression. We all know about people who are totally lost in collecting tokens. For example, collecting money. I've, I've got more money than yesterday. Okay, these are a caricature. We all have, have them in any and every single one of our civilizations. We confuse, actually, progression and external recognition. How many cars do you have? What type of car do you have? The tokens become the goal of our lives itself. It is as dangerous because it can create as much damage around the individual because he wants to achieve that. Take gambling, for example. The search for absolute significance as well can create addictions, can create enslavement. Think about cults. But let's take even, uh, uh, I would say, something which will sound extremely innocuous. You take sports, for example. It is fascinating to see that sports have existed actually for millennia. And the more we dig, it's a bit like beer. We discover that sports have existed since humans exist nearly. Talk about the blues versus the reds. Wherever you come across these two words, blues versus reds, in life, depending on your culture, your continent, it may be Chelsea versus Liverpool, or it may be Manchester City versus Liverpool or Manchester United, depending on the year, depending on the, and so on and so forth. It may be Arsenal 
versus Manchester City, the Blues versus the Reds. Well, the Romans had exactly the same. Actually, they had so much the same that they had to extend the colors of the racing teams into something else, to other sports. I can very well imagine that the Mayas as well as semi-professional or even professional football team. Why? Because we saw actually monuments dedicated to their form of football. Basically, sports clubs are sometimes turned into quasi, if not entire, religions. The same went for a time with politics. Remember the 50s, where you had the right, a mystical blue right, and the reds, a mystical reds. So the communism versus the liberalism, to simplify, or the capitalist, depending on where you stand, had this kind of crusade spirit. The opposite team was the absolute evil, regardless of where you stood. There was no in-between. Basically, you look at the current addictions, the current elements, and even talking about social media, where you are listening me to me right now, the ticks, the likes, how many views. This is an addiction which we instantly feel because we are instantly pulled towards it. So, we need to talk about this need to fill the void because whenever it feels or it sounds or it looks like desperation, it may very well be. But on the other end, denying it entirely is a lost cause. It's a loss of time. Basically, why? Because taking a time out from our own life, regardless of the means, regardless of the tools, and regardless, again, of the actual risk, is an understandable, understandable activity within our own life. This is basically a need to alleviate the sense of emptiness we feel. And again, we've got the risks, the personal risk, and we've got another boundary, which is very directly the exercise of one's freedom versus the freedom of everybody else around us. So I truly believe that whenever we ask ourselves, oh, my life feels empty, or should my life or could my life be more full, or did I live a good life, or am I living a good life, or will I be living a good life, we come to realize that void emptiness is not the enemy, is not the opposite of, but simply is a part of life. This is consubstantial to life. We try, we, we tend to, we, we are pushed to define life very often in binary terms. This is this or this is that. This is success or this is failure. And some pairings are totally irreconcilable. So when we try to define ourselves, when we try to, to carve our path in our life, choose our significances, choose our progression, define our moments of oblivion, binary terms very often seems conflicting. So for example, can an, a CEO, a successful CEO, be an alcoholic or a drug taker? Remember the, the Elon Musk um, problem when he went to an interview uh, online? How can a successful CEO, an inventor, be smoking dope? Not possible. An ambitious saint, 
look at the controversy around mother Teresa. Yes, she 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 wanted to succeed. She she was driven. She knew what she wanted, but she still was a saint. What about a benevolent meditating trader? The, the, the two terms seem to be totally at odds because on the one hand you've got the ultimate token pro, uh, collector, the, the guy who has it all, the guy who has all the money, all the cars, all the houses, all the apartments. And on the other end, a guy who wants to do good, who, who has this high significance with such materialistic tokens seems impossible. Impossible, no. Improbable, maybe. But they are certainly not made up. They exist. We know them. We meet them. They are actually the only real people that probably exist. Not the archetypes or the avatars which we would like, the monodimensional people entirely dedicated to one significance or one uh, progression or, or to oblivion. Most probably, you, you, you may have extremely drug adult um, CEOs, no problem about that. But it seems built into us, built into our societies, in the, the social way we behave, that we reject or we try to deny these contradictory stereotypes. They are not. They are not mutually exclusive. They are simply belonging to different registers, different gradations, different priorities, different rankings, different, different decisions which we make, different choices which we make. Some combinations may be totally unexpected and it may be difficult to actually hold both ends of the description and the one end. But none of them are totally impossible. They can be totally consubstantial to our lives. Each of the ways we actually fill our void has its own function, has its own interest and gives our life its particularly fabric, its particularly driven way of looking. Significance, progression and oblivion are not opposite ideas, are not conflicting ideas. They are simply different layers of solutions. They give us significance, worthiness, progression, success, oblivion, happiness, or a sense of happiness, or a sense of success, or a sense of worthiness. But as our life goes on, as our life experience grows, we will layer, rank, prioritize all of these differently rebalance them continuously whenever actually life seems too much or not enough. This is the very reason why we continuously feel this frantic search for a proper balance. So what is ultimately a full life? To me, it is the balance we reach between these three elements. This is actually the balance we establish within these three elements significance, progression, and oblivion. This is, per definition, the system equilibrium we achieve. But the reality is that once we foresee this equilibrium, once we have reached a balance, life will also change it. Life will always push us to poke and probe this balance. And this 
to optimize how we fill our void. Also, we think on the moment. This is actually this continuous tweaking, which is the exact way we fill the void. Our life will only let us glimpses of absolutes, never define them. This is our frustration that we will never experience nothing and everything. We will just get glimpse of them. We will just get a whiff of them. Hence, the worst choice we can make is to bet the entire house, to bet our entire life to one imperative. That imperative being oblivion or significance or progression. We cannot have a life which is driven entirely by a cult or by alcohol or by cars. This can only be a balance. This should be our continuous tweaking of the three elements, the three layers, our own prioritization, our own task list. We may be pushed by our genetics. That's the latest theory. We may be pushed by our culture, our experience, our, our, our education, our proclivities, whatever you wish. But ultimately, I think that we've got to look at life as trying to solve the balance of an entire system of transitory goals by definition. And hence, we fill our own life with an individual equation which is of our own device, for our own sake. And so, the balance itself will forever be the something in between that is our life. This is how we feel, this is how we feel our own significance.